Good morning again. Now we've already had our scripture readings uh, from 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 16, and the gospel reading from Luke 16, 19 through 31. Now you notice that the title of the sermon says, Lessons from a Poor Man. Now I'm really not sure that's the best title for this sermon, but I had to give Lisa something last week to put in last week's bulletin. So I'm going to let y'all figure out what you think is the best title for this sermon. But let's pray. I stand in awe of your purity, Lord. Your decisions are true. They are completely fair. They are more desirable than the finest gold. They are sweeter than the honey that drips from a honeycomb. As your servant, I am warned by your commands. And there is a great reward in following them. So may the words of my mouth and the thoughts from my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my defender. Amen. Okay, before I get started on the message, I just want to tell you that down south, even in a Methodist church, people will say an occasional amen or a hallelujah. And I know that some of y'all come from a different religious background where that was common to say an amen or a hallelujah but now you become Methodist and you, you kind of sit there on your hands and don't say anything. Well this is your chance to uh, throw in an amen once in a while and I've asked my good friend Ron back here if nobody else does t- for him to throw in an amen when he feels the spirit move because I tell you it's going to make a much better sermon if I get an amen once in a while. So l- let me hear What does an amen sound like to you? Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. Okay. (laughs) Now, the central message of this gospel reading makes me a little bit uncomfortable. See, I had already written this sermon when an acquaintance called and wanted us to drive to her house to get her, take her to Walmart to buy water, and then take her home. Now, she meets most of the criteria of being a Lazarus. She's poor hell. Uh, poor, unable to get around on her own. Uh, So I suggested that we buy the water and take it to her. She said she'd make other arrangements and hung up. So I missed an opportunity to be a service. But that's only part of why I'm uncomfortable with the message, which is clearly aimed at me. However, I am going to share it with you and In love, I tell you, I hope it makes you squirm a little in your seats also. I also pray that the Lord makes his lesson sweeter than honey for us all. Lazarus and the rich man is a parable of extremes. For this was not just a rich man, this was a very rich man who lived a life of excess. Observe his clothing made of the finest cloth and colored purple the most expensive dye to use. To make even a little purple dye, thousands upon thousands of snails were boiled in lead vats. So, wearing purple as his daily clothing indicates a man of great wealth and also great vanity, such as those scribes that Jesus condemned in Luke 20, 46 and 47, where he said, Beware the scribes, which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms of feasts, 
which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. So this wealthy man ate each day like it was a feast day, which demonstrated that he had food in excess, and yet he never once shared it with the man who lay dying at his gate. Yes, he had a gate to his residence, and that suggests that his property is walled around to protect those things that he had gathered to himself and to isolate himself. He also we also know that though Lazarus begged at his gate every day, he never opened the gate to him. Now on the other extreme, Lazarus was not only a poor man, this was a man who lived in painful, pitiful life every day. His body was covered in sores, seeping sores, open wounds. He was lame or at least too weak to walk as evidenced by the fact that it says he was laid at the gate. Now this also suggests that even in such a dreadful state, he had friends who would bring him daily to the rich man's gate. He was so weak that he couldn't even stop the dogs from licking his wounds. And on top of this, he was starving to death, literally. He was to the point of asking to eat the same crumbs that the dogs ate on the floor underneath the table. Now, I can't imagine a a greater gulf between the social standing of these two men. Can you? One was respected, honored, envied, and possibly feared because of his great wealth. He would have had the best seats at banquets in the synagogues. His social calendar was undoubtedly full of invitations to attend functions by those hoping to raise their own status by association with him. He would have had servants or slaves to do his every bidding. He was a powerful man. Lazarus, on the other hand, was shunned and shut out of society. Though he starved, he was not invited to anyone's feast. Under the law of Moses, he would have been considered unclean and untouchable. He was not only expelled from society, but he was physically expelled from the village. Remember that I said he had friends that would daily bring him to the rich man's house? Well, hear these words from Numbers 19.22. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening, which means his helpers, by helping him, would also become ritually unclean for that day. Even if they never touched him, but only carried him on a mat or a blanket, by touching what he had touched, they made themselves also untouchable until sundown. See, there's much more to this parable. However, I want to stop here and ask an important question. But please do not raise your hands. With whom do you identify in the story? Are you Lazarus? Are you ill or infirm? Are you an outcast in society? Are you from... Are are you at the poverty level or below? Are you unable to supply your basic needs? If this is you, please contact the pastor. Are you the rich man? 
Do you have more than your basic needs met? Do you have a reliable income? Do you have discretionary income? If you have income beyond your basic needs, do you spend it on yourself or to assist those in need? Do you own your own home and property? Are you highly thought of in your community? If this is you and this sermon causes you to rethink how your discretionary income is spent, contact the pastor. Are you the friends of the beggar? Are you the primary caregiver of someone else? Do you provide physical or financial aid to those in need? Are you willing to give up your social standing to help someone in need? Are you willing to risk your own health to assist someone in need? If this is you, first of all, thank you. Now, if you would like to expand your outreach or missionary work, who do you contact? Right, the pastor. Now, I'll give you all a moment to consider how you would answer the Lord Jesus were he to ask this question of you. All right, let us continue studying the parable. Now, an exchange takes place where the rich man not so much as asks as commands Abraham to send Lazarus to ease his pain in Hades. His self-importance and selfishness, it seems, extends even to hell itself, doesn't it? Now, I'm sure that there is a name for people like that, but it wouldn't be right to use that in church, right? This formerly rich man hasn't lost any of his arrogance even in hell. He believes that that worthless Lazarus should be sent to hell to serve his needs. Now this might be a good time to let you know that I believe that I believe in heaven. Do you? I know it to be a real place, though it may not be a physical place. I believe it is a place where we are completely in fellowship with God as the Creator originally intended when He created mankind. And I believe that Jesus has secured our passage to heaven by His sacrificial death. That, that deserves a hallelujah or a thank you, Jesus, don't you think? Now, I know that a lot of modern churches don't often speak about hell. So I will tell you that I believe in hell. It's a real place, though it might not be a physical place. I believe that hell is being completely separated from God, cast out into the outer darkness. And this is the afterlife that some choose by their action or inaction in this life. What I do not believe is that there will be communication between heaven and hell. I believe that this was just a, uh, a device that Jesus used in this parable. Now, in this parable, Abraham tells the rich man that Lazarus cannot do as he demands, there is no passage between heaven and hell. There's a great expanse stands between them. And I, for one, thank God for that. What a reversal 
of fortunes has taken place. Amen. Now, in their earthly lives, the rich man consumed all the best things at the, of the earth, while Lazarus was afflicted with unbearable pain, suffering, and humiliation. However, now, see how Lazarus is healed and comforted by Father Abraham himself, while the rich man is suffering in a place of eternal torment. It's amazing how God's justice and mercy work hand in hand, right? Now, the rich man then begs Abraham. Now, did you hear that? He begged on earth day after day. Lazarus begged for food at his gate. Now, the formerly rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his still living brothers. Though he shows concern for his family, even in this begging, he had so little concern for Lazarus that he would order him sent about as if he were a slave. Are you still following me? Pay attention here. This is the important point that Jesus is making. Abraham bluntly said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Now remember that Jesus is talking to the temple rulers, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now these two different Jewish sects had different religious philosophies. The scribes based their beliefs strictly only on the five books of Moses and disregarded the books of the prophets and others. The Pharisees' philosophy was based more on oral tradition of the elders rather than the scriptures. So Jesus quotes Isaiah in Matthew 15:9, where God said, In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. So, Jesus, having Abraham say, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them, was pointed directly at both the scribes and the Pharisees, and I'm sure that it wasn't lost on them. Now, don't let that slide past you. We also have Moses and the prophets. Are we... What are we to say, what are they to say to us? Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now he was talking about the, what we call the Old Testament because there wasn't a New Testament at this point. So when he was saying all scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. You can put woman in there too. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. See. There were a, a lot more to the Bible than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I encourage you to read it. That mini-sermon was thrown in at no extra charge. Now the story continues. Father Abraham, if someone goes... To them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If you do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. You hear a little bit of messianic prophecy thrown in here at the last? For we know that many 
were not convinced even when Jesus returned from the dead. All right, now I warned you that this would probably make you uncomfortable, so here's the pointed end of the stick. It's painfully obvious to me that our comfort in our eternal life, our forever life, is dependent on our short time on this earthly life. Now, I'm a good person, Ella, don't you say a word. And you're all good people, as the world judges people. The problem is, God doesn't give two hoots and a holler for how the world judges us. As I said earlier, I think that the rich man was probably respected and deferred to in his community, and people probably thought he was a good man. But on the day of judgment, he was found lacking. I just can't get past Jesus in Matthew 25, 34 through 36, saying, Come, you that are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. I See, I long to hear him say those words to me. And you do too, right? But listen to the rest of the story. Then he will say to those on his left hand, You that are cursed, depart from me into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And those on his left stood spitting and a sputtering, but I was one of the good ones. Just ask my neighbors. Well, Luke in particular stresses the way that the status of the rich and the poor is reversed in the kingdom of God. Remember that this sermon on the plain, Jesus tells the poor that God favors them and that the kingdom of God belongs to them, but he warned the rich of what is to come since they have already received their consolation in this life. Now, in his very first sermon, Jesus announced, The Spirit is Lord upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And twice in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is said to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to your home, to your party. I don't know about you, but I'm quickly revisiting my party invitations. It appears to me that the author of James was spot on in writing, Show me your faith apart from your works, and by my works I will show you my faith. See, true faith has to have legs and hands to be a servant of Lord Jesus. And let's not forget the bank account. That is, after all, what is the basis of this parable. You can accumulate stuff on earth or earn your reward in heaven. Now, frankly, the story of the rich man and Lazarus can be hard to swallow for many Americans. Let's be real. Our lifestyle stands, our lifestyle stands in sharp contrast with most of the world. For in, instance, worldwatch.org had this to say, the 12% of the world's population that lives in North America and Western Europe 
accounts for 60% of private consumption spending. Wait, hear that again. 12% of the world's population consumes 60% of the resources. And the rest of the world? Well, 33% of the world living in South Asia and the Sub-Sahara Africa consume only 3.2%. Folks, we are the rich men. Certainly, some percentage of that rampant consumerism could be used to list some poor, naked, imprisoned, sick, hungry, thirsty stranger. Now, I really need an amen here, just so I can know you haven't clenched, clenched your checkbook to your chest and slid down in the pew. Again, I'm saying this in love, and this is not an appeal to increase your tithe and offering. Sorry, Finance Committee. This is an appeal for us to take a long look at all of our resources and see how we may be of use to help those who have fallen through the cracks in society. Now, I strongly believe that when our cup of blessing overflows, we're not to drink deeper. We are to pass that blessing along. As I said earlier, it is painfully obvious to me that our comfort in our eternal life, our forever life, is dependent on our short time on this earthly life. We brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it. So do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, I know our temptation is to explain away a story like this and to remove its blatant depiction of how God will ultimately vindicate the cause of the poor. But the message has been clearly stated. Like the rich man's five brothers, we have been given all the warning we need by Moses, the prophets, plus a man risen from the dead, Jesus himself. So I will end with this quote from uh, Reverend Dr. Sam Persons Parkin, Parks. I'll get that out eventually. Dr. Sam Persons Parks, pastor of Cloverville United Methodist Church in Dotham, Alabama. He says, privilege is blinding culturally, ecologically, theologically, sexually, and racially. But a lot of people, the dominance, just don't care. Many of them have their own version of Moses and the Prophets, worst band name ever, by the way. Many of us had parents who taught us to care for others and to be kind and compassionate. And we believe those things, yet we often fail to act on them. I pray I've left you with something to think about and to pray about. Amen.